Well, hello. Welcome to another King and Servant podcast. Um, it's been a while since uh, we've been in the studio. Um, I believe it was three weeks ago now. But in that time, I haven't left you without any audio. Um, because in that time, you'd be happy to know that uh, I eventually got hold of those MP3 files uh, of the debate that I did in Seattle last month. Um, so if you go over to kingandservant.com, um, you can see both the, uh, the radio show that I did in Seattle and the debate is now available for download. And if you subscribe to the podcast, then of course you should have it by now. And for those who are not subscribed to the podcast, if you go to kingandservant.com, you should see a large red button on the right-hand side. Uh, I've made it massive, so you just can't miss it, right? It's the iTunes logo, but I, I found one that was in the color red rather than the uh, traditional classic color of, I guess, blue or purple. Uh, because I felt it was cool and represented Christ. I don't know. But it's there to stand out, so you can click on it, and you can download and subscribe to the podcast. Um, so I think that's it for Two Kingdoms Theology. Um, oh, apart from one other thing, um, I did another radio show up in Seattle. I mean, I phoned in from Florida, but it, again, uh, pertained to the Two Kingdoms Theology and the debate I did last month in Seattle. So I want to make that available as soon as I get hold of those files as well. But I think after that, then it's definitely over. I have reached the apex, okay, of explaining myself when it comes to Two Kingdoms theology, which I'm happy about. I feel satisfied in that. Uh, Also, uh, a quick announcement uh, concerning next week. Uh, Next week, we're going to be uh, doing a show on youth ministry. And we're going to have a few youth pastors in the studio with us. Also, we're going to have uh, Brian. Brian will not be joining me this evening because I have a very special guest in the studio uh, who I'll introduce in just a few moments. But uh, next week, both Brian and myself and for sure one youth pastor, probably even a second youth pastor, will join us to discuss the challenges of doing youth ministry in this day and age, especially in South Florida. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But tonight we have a very different show lined up for you. But it does tie in to show 15, which was the last show we recorded here at the studio. And uh, I made an announcement that, uh, indeed, I would have a special guest on the show. And some of you doubted because some of you sent emails. Some of you sent me a text message saying, what's all this talk, Jonathan? You're a bit of a big shot saying that you're with these big names. But I'm here to tell you tonight that uh, God has been gracious and uh, I have with me Dee Dee Warren uh, to discuss partial preterism, eschatology and heavy metal this evening. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily in that order. So I'm very much looking forward to this and um, I think it's going to be at least an hour. Perhaps uh, we might need to go on a bit longer, but uh, there's so much material to cover. Um, I tried my best. I don't know if you've got an opportunity to listen to the uh, the show I did a couple of weeks ago on eschatology. But I did try my best to lay the foundation so you're at least in the know on what partial preterism is about. Uh, but there's so many, uh, so many other stones that uh, need to be overturned this evening. I thought the best person to do that would be Dee Dee. So welcome to the studio. And thank you very much. Yes, it's great to have you here. Um... Like I said in rehearsal, we know when we had to start over again. Um, when I first uh, encountered your work on the website, um, I initially thought that you were a chap. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this guy is just so, so insightful and so scholarly. 
and uh, I would even refer to you in the he. <laughs> I was like, I was like talking to other people, going, "Yeah, he, uh, DD Warren, yeah, he's 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 awesome, yeah." I don't know why. I don't know why uh, I. Th- there, I have to give a disclaimer that there's yeah. no picture of me on the website because I don't want people thinking I'm like a <laughs> looking girl, you no, know, no. like a troll. No, no it, was, <laughs> it, it, it was it was completely my ignorance. Okay, it was absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, it was all to do with me, okay? But come on. I mean, I even thought Jay Walker was an actual guy, okay? And not a fictional figure that Paul Minato had made up for his own entertainment. So I'm very gullible, okay? <laughs> bit naive at times, but um, I was pleasantly uh, surprised, if you don't mind me saying that, uh, you were a, a strong lady in the Lord defending uh, a doctrine that was new to me at the time, and more importantly, and this is where I really want to give you um, a lot of thanks, where you helped me personally, is you were the only uh, person out there on the web, which is a big place, the World Wide Web, at the time that was refuting hyperpreterism and exclusively uh, defending partial preterism or what you like to refer to as orthodox preterism. Tim, glad you got that because I was going to have to give you a yes, scolding. Yeah, and I, you know, so I've been around the block a few times, yeah. so I know the do's and don'ts of talking with uh, DD. <laughs> Uh, but that's not your actual name, right? That's the, a screen name that you have. Yeah, that's – it's, you know, kind of like my writing name. You know, you got Stephen King who probably couldn't sell books under his – what's Richard Bachman? Well, I guess actually – I didn't know that. See, this is nothing I didn't know. But. Yeah, that's not his real name. Yeah. Um, so a, a while back – and people who have listened to my podcast know I'm very, very transparent about my, my personal history on my podcast. And it was something that my husband had insisted upon. He was very suspicious of the internet. So in order for me to do internet ministry, he, he insisted that I adopt a writing name. And so it's kind of stuck. And even though now I'm free to use my real name, my real name is Karen. Everyone knows me as Dee Dee Warren. I've been that using it. Out there. Yeah, yeah, I've been using it for a decade. I answer to it. All my friends still call me that, or Dizzle, actually. Mm. There's yeah. a whole story behind that as well. So, you know, if it's even anywhere in the family of that, I, I'll answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you respond to DD, yeah, if if if, if called that way, yeah. So yeah, automatically turn because I've been using it for so long. It, it's just as natural to me as my as my birth name or however you want to refer to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, my name is Jonathan Gowdry, and people know me as Jonathan Gowdry. Although I did attempt something similar to what you did uh, a few years back, not because I had somebody requesting it, right, but because uh, I just thought it'd be cool. What, you're like Rocky or something. Yeah, yeah what well, can't you tell? <laughs> yeah, she's been a bit intimidated this evening by my uh, my stature, which I can understand it happens. But uh, I've actually started working out at the gym. Truth be known, but I uh, got a long way to go. A long way to go. But yeah, initially I um, I promoted myself as Van Voss because I took <laughs> I took the two um, the two Dutch theologians Cornelius van Til and Gerhardus Voss. And I thought I was pretty slick. Yeah, Van Voss. And I uh, even had the Van Voss blog spot and everything like that. But it never took off. It was never meant to be, you know. It was supposed to be the Now Mind with Gene Cook and now the King and Servant podcast as my good self, Jonathan Gowdry. So, so yeah, uh, I think that's uh, the introductions out the way. As I said before, I'm very happy that you're able to be here this evening. And uh, there's so many issues even within that uh, subject of preterism that we can touch this this evening. But what I would like to do is to begin with your personal testimony, if you will, as far as how you personally came to a preterist understanding of eschatology. So uh, take it away. Okay. Um, 
I became a, a Christian r- right here in Florida. I was uh, brought to Christ at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and attended there for, for many, many years. And anyone, I'm sure most people in the audience, at least locally, are, are, are familiar with them. And it's an extremely dispensational church. And I just immediately fell in love with the Word. So I just started just reading the Bible. And I think maybe I, I got a little bit ahead of myself in, you know, still such a baby Christian, but was re- reading so much. And, and I came across Matthew twenty four thirty four. I was mm-hmm. less than a year in the Lord. And when I read it, I mean, it appeared to say what I actually now believe it says, but what Calvary would would insist that it didn't. And Matthew 24, 34 is the verse that says um, when Jesus is talking to the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he says to them, most assuredly, um, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until they um, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or am I getting that? I get my verses conflated. I'm terrible. The great D.D. Warren has fallen. No, no, not at all. Um, In fact, you... uh, until so, all these things take place, I conflated Matthew 16 the, yes. and Matthew 24. Yeah. But, but they're related, so but, I can be excused. You're well within the context, yeah. In, in fact, if I feel <laughs> that there's a scripture that's just like so off the beaten track that yeah. uh, it's off it's off in the woods, then I'll give you like a nod like, no, not that one, right? But you were well within okay. the context. Yeah. Well, you verse know, 30 and verse 34, yeah. The, 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 the gospel authors, they conflated verses all the time, so... I, you well with I have apostolic warrant there. There we go. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was it was that particular verse and verses like it, like the one in Matthew sixteen, mm-hmm. and Jesus seemed to be saying quite emphatically that something very very major was to happen back mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. and it's verses that my church was teaching me mm-hmm. were the second coming, mm-hmm. and that really disturbed me mm-hmm. because. I came from a very skeptical background. I, d- I became a Christian later in life, mm-hmm. and I just started to doubt. So, right. but I wanted to believe. Right. So this, if you don't mind me interjecting, this oh, point, I don't th- mind at all. This was um, almost a crisis of faith, potentially. Oh, it there was no potentially about it. I mean, right. it, it was, but I took I took the attitude, which I think is a healthy attitude for for a new Christian. Is okay. I don't understand this, but. You know, there are people who have been studying this for years. Mm-hmm. Um, there are much more learned people than I that mm-hmm. one day, let me just put this aside and trust God, and one day I'll mm-hmm. have an answer to this. Yeah. But it still was always, it, it was in the back of my mind. And like when I go into Family Christian or the Calvary Bookstore, I mean, I'd make a beeline for the commentary section, mm-hmm. and that's like, the, I've always went and read every explanation. I think I've yeah. heard every explanation under the sun. I think yeah. the most creative one is by Gleason Archer, who said it wasn't originally in Greek. It was in Aramaic, and the word for generation is different. I mean, it was very quite yeah. creative, actually. Yes. And I would corner pastors, too. I mean, I, yeah. I was a terror to them. You know, I'd get them, yeah. at, you know, and— you explained this to me. I remember cornering Chuck Missler on that one. He wasn't really? too, yeah, he wasn't too happy with me. So you had, a, you had dialogue with Chuck Missler? Oh, Mr. yeah. Mr. Y2K himself? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he he came to Calvary Fort Lauderdale and told us that the Nephilim were aliens, uh, you know, abducting people. Yeah, I remember listening to that teaching series. And actually, I like Chuck Missler. I mean, personally, if I met him in person, I'd be like, you know, you're, you're just a cool chap, right? But that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Cool chap. But... um. I find his teachings really scary when it comes to those things, and eschatology as well. Yeah, yeah. the thing I like Chuck—he's a very, mm-hmm. Chuck as well. He's a very 
personable person. Yeah. And when he's dealing just with the background of text mm-hmm. and the the historical and just just reading the text, mm-hmm. he is one of the best Old Testament teachers that there are. Mm-hmm. But when he starts importing his dispensationalism, it just goes off the rails. Right, and this is what I've observed as well that these guys. It kind of reminds me, if you don't mind me touching on this, like Calvinism and Armenianism. And I know that you know you you you're on a journey there. You know? I'm close. Hey, we, I'm not. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, not ashamed, and that's and that's cool. He probably is where my good father is, and he's spiritually uh, light years ahead of me. So you're in, you're in you're in good company tonight. But um, what I was saying, yeah, I found with these guys that. Um, like Calvinism and Armenianism, you can hear them so many other subjects. You go, yeah. Like on the way back from work today, I was listening to John Carson. I quite like listening to John Carson. And when he speaks about living the Christian life, applying the word to Christian living, I'm like, yeah, amen, brother. But when he gets into eschatology and typology, I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. what happened? And when they start talking about uh, Calvinism and the straw man argumentation that they have, it's like, ah, oh, it just drives me nuts. So, Calvary Chapel giveth, Calvary Chapel give, taketh away, you know? Yeah, it's, cause it's a mixed pa- bag. Yeah, because yeah. Pastor Bob Coy is yeah. an awesome pa- He's like talented beyond belief. God has given him great, great gifts. Mm-hmm. And in teaching on living the Christian life and mm-hmm. having an upright character and having integrity. Mm-hmm. And and just to, to speak, so I, I want to give props to, to Bob Coy because you mentioned that whole Y2K thing. Yeah. He had people, he had actually Chuck Missler come in and talk on Y2K. Mm-hmm. And someone had written him to show him all the fallacies in that. And he's the, he, he was man enough and pastor enough. He got in front of the whole congregation and said, I think I've misled you. And mm-hmm. I need to apologize to each and every one of you. And he brought in somebody to mm-hmm. correct it. And to mm-hmm. me, that, that made a lasting impression on me of Christian integrity. So yeah. while I disagree with them on so many things, mm-hmm. I just think he's a powerful man of God. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, that's why I even uh, paid my dues to Chuck Misler because there's a lot of teachings out there that he does and Calvary Chapel produces and puts out there that I would recommend to others. Listen to this. It's good. But when it comes to eschatology, and that's what we're here to discuss tonight, they are they're really off the radar for me. <coughs> I couldn't in a clear conscience, excuse me, um, recommend them to somebody else. And it's because of verses like this, uh, in the Olivet Discourse in particular, when it says, this generation shall not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Do you want to talk about that some more and how that impacted you? Yeah, we, uh, kind of pick up, <coughs> pick up where I left off. And so as I started few years into my faith and and talking to these these learned people and reading all these commentaries i wasn't finding anything really satisfactory and it was right about that time i think we're talking about 98 99 where the internet was really coming into its own and and, mm. and message boards were getting to be very popular you know i thought mm. i would, you, you had to pay for AOL at that time okay i paid $50 for an AOL disk true story <laughs> Sad story, sad story. Um, yeah, well. there were. I had two megabytes of RAM. <laughs> I was cooking. <laughs> but I started doing internet searches and I ran into hyperpreterists. Mm-hmm. They seemed to me to be the only ones who were willing to, to forthrightly admit what the text appeared to say and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it seemed convincing. At least finally someone to me was being honest. It's, it, but the ramifications of everything else mm-hmm. that they taught were so devastating to me that 
um, without getting into the whole implications of, you know, perseverance of the saints and all that. I mean, at that time, I felt like I nearly lost my faith. Right. It was it was that much of a crisis. Yes. And for those who are new to this term hyperpreterism, I, I think I did touch on it once last week, but just to unpack it a little bit. It's a position that's gained some popularity for some reason. And maybe you can explain that in a few moments to why it's been popular on the Internet. But it's an eschatological position that really isn't an eschatology. It's it's a it's a book of history. That's what it is, and uh, they have the conclusion that all eschatological events reached its conclusion in AD seventy, surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the dissolvement of the old covenant era. And there is no New Testament eschatology. There's no eschatology for us today. So what that means essentially, there is no future coming of Christ. Correct. There is no general resurrection of the dead. There is no new heavens, new earth. Because all those things, in their interpretation, according to their hermeneutic, has already taken place. Correct. And they tend to Gnosticize things away to explain that. Yeah, it's... It, especially the issue of the, of the resurrection of the dead, that's where I, I've focused the majority of, of my study to realize the importance of the resurrection, our resurrection. I think everyone understands the importance of Christ's resurrection, but sometimes fail to make the connection on how organically connected mm-hmm. ours is with his, mm-hmm. that it is an essential of the faith. And the gospel is empty without mm-hmm. it, w- without that defeat of death. And that was the point Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. So that's kind of the drum I've been beating the whole time because that is precisely what nearly wrecked my faith. Mm. And then you know, if you read in the Bible, you shouldn't be surprised that it almost did that because you had a couple of guys back then who were teaching looks like something very similar to what hyperpreterists teach the Hymenaeus, today. Right. Yeah, Hymenaeus and Philetus said yeah. that the resurrection was past and it caused the shipwreck of faith of some. And mm. yeah, it, it's still happening today. I, I know other people it's happened to that 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 write to me, and mm-hmm. it and at that time. There was nothing. Nothing, nothing right? <laughs> no, I was, I was there, my sister. I, the frustration of listening, and we'll touch on this now as well, listening to Gary DeMar on the Bible Answer Man show. I mean, this is mainstream stuff. And offering sound, exegetical arguments for orthodox preterism. And then going over to websites to do further research and just to be flooded with hyperpreterism. And furthermore... To find people like Demar, in all honesty, uh, on the same websites as these guys and doing conferences together with these hyperpreterist groups. And I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, what have I bought into? Now, I never for one moment felt that hyperpreterism, once it was explained to me, was a tenable position. But maybe because I was just stubborn or I just, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a particular psychology that I have, but I was like, that is whack. I just knew. It was nonsense. But where I had a little bit of anxiety, if you will, or a point of frustration is I was looking for refutations of hyperpreterism out there and I couldn't hardly find any. Actually, my initial search turned up at zero as far as finding uh, credible uh, scholars who were refuting hyperpreterism. Um, but then I came across um, Gene Cook. You know, we passed the church together and came very close friends. I got connected with him for other reasons, but one of the things I first listened to uh, with Gene Cook was uh, his interview with Paul Minata, who's also a good friend of mine now. And uh, he had 
offered a full refutation, I felt, of hyperpreterism. He used the transcendental argument against hyperpreterism. And then uh, he produced an article uh, with, I think, about 26 arguments refuting hyperpreterism. Yes. And at that point, something gave, you know, and we had books released even by Covenant Media Ministries. A couple of books were released by them. Even the likes of Doug Wilson were refuting it. Um, so I think we're out the woods now. I think it's definitely been boxed and categorized as this is heretical. It's been refuted. Let's move on with our lives. But for a while back there, it was uncertain. It was uncertain for me if the body of Christ and the uh, the the Western Church, who largely tackled with this issue, I don't know if it's popular elsewhere, maybe you might know that, but as as we in America uh, strove to refute this, this heresy. So I guess in one sense, it's good to be at this end of things. You know, um, at this point in... Uh, the history of, of, of uh, hyperpreterism as it's been rebirthed in recent years through these groups and to see these sod refutations come in has given me peace of mind. But uh, when did you finally come to that realisation? Hyperpreterism, it's not only heretical, but I can refute it and it's... It took a while. Right, right. And it, I believe it, that. It, it, it took me a, a, a really long time, especially, you know, at first where I, where I found nothing, um, just like your experience, but I think we're going back a little bit further where they're really... Yeah, you were like early, early days, you know. Yeah, it, it was even closer in time to, to David Chilton's apostasy, which was very disturbing to me. The, yeah, that you was know, scary stuff, yeah. And every and the hyperpreters were making a lot of hay over that, and that mm -hmm. just... So I started... What, what I did then is I said, well, you know, I've been pretty good at this. I'm pretty bold. So I just got on the phone and just started calling people. And I pretty much had talked good to everybody. Yeah. And Gary Damar is one of the people I talked to who, to this day, I'll, I'll never forget how unhelpful he was. And I really think he, he, he did a, a tremendous disservice to me. Now, mm. in God's providence, obviously, he brought other other people into my life. But I cringe to think of anyone else who... Yeah. had happened to them. And mm. I think, though, since that time that, that he's grown a lot and changed his position a lot than from those early days. Yeah, and I would still endorse Gary DeMar's teachings, his website, mm -hmm. but as you do, I think you've struck the balance well. You use a word of caution uh, when you uh, uh, publish his papers or link his papers to your website. I think you caution, right? And, yes. Yeah, and like there are some things that are troubling because of his association and because... He hasn't had unnecessary hard news, refutations, and distancing himself from them. I think that's why uh, this needs to be a flag raised saying, hey, read Demar. He's useful. I enjoyed his book last day of madness, I think it was. That was really persuasive. But hey, just, just tread carefully. And there are other authors out there who I think have a more balanced uh, approach. Uh, Gentry, I found more balanced than Demar. Um, but maybe one day you should write a book, Dee Dee, and uh, settle it all once and for all. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I definitely need an editor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm way too long-winded and love the M-dash way too much. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. You never know. Uh, has to be somebody, right? Y yeah, <laughs> you like know. Uh, I actually have entertained that because mm -hmm. I have a little bit of a, a different position 
like an overarching – I hate to use these terms because it's like so emergent and I'm not emergent at all. So don't have the red flags go up. But an overarching meta narrative yeah. of eschatology that to me is what was the linchpin to finally mm-hmm. put me at utter peace mm-hmm. against against hyperpreterism. And it's where I think um, guys like Gary DeMar get it wrong mm-hmm. and why they unwittingly – because he he obviously doesn't intend to turn people into hyperpreterists, but if you no. if you listen to hyperpreterists, more than half of them credit Gary Damar for why they are where they are. And if people were crediting me, I'd be I'd have to stay back and you know step back and take a look. At what am I what am I communicating poorly? Yes, you know it's not his fault, but obviously something's gone wrong somewhere. Yes, and it's not. We we haven't planned this show. Or let's talk about the man. Yeah, it just happened but, that way. But but um, it is significant because he has been significant in this whole dialogue. You know whether he wants to call it a dialogue or not. I mean, yes. he's in it, and um, um, and for those who are new to this, you might be thinking, well, you know, I was wanting to hear more exegetical arguments and. You can listen to show fifteen that covers that. But one of the reasons I want, I wanted rather Didi on the show this evening is, you don't realise how hyperpreterism can mess somebody up. Yes. And thankfully, experientially, um, I was preserved from it, and I, I didn't have too much of a, uh, a headache from it. But um, I've spoken to others as well, who really toyed with it and were really wrestling with it. And I can, I haven't been down that road. But God's shown me enough to see how dark that road is. And um, I just want you to have that outlet this evening to say, hey, it was really, really, you know. No, it was. It, bothersome to me. I, yeah. I mean, it, I ended up being diagnosed at that time with my mm. first bout of clinical depression. Mm-hmm. It, it was definitely spiritually sourced. Mm-hmm. Um, once I started to come to grips with the theology, you know, that cleared up. Mm-hmm. Um, God put in my life Pastor Corey Soraya, and he's the one because his book wasn't out yet called The End of All Things, which really was the first full-length refutation right, of that hyperpreterism. Was good. Yes. And I breathed a sigh of relief when that came out. Finally, you know, somebody. Yeah. Finally. I mean, I called him like mm-hmm. – at his house, he's probably wondering, you know, who is this girl? Yeah. Yeah. Out of the blue, but he has a true pastor's heart. He 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 mentored me for about a year out, mm-hmm. out of hyperpreterism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, it was such a dark night mm-hmm. of the soul, and I still probably get at least one email a month from someone who started in the same position as me, writing me to say, you know, praise God for your website. And that's mm-hmm. that's what keeps me going because mm-hmm. it's been no walk in the park and it's oh, – I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure if you if you had known what type of uh, onslaught you would have had uh, – and I think that word is appropriate, you know. Yes. The way the email and blog and everything. Um, I think you would have like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. You know, I, I don't think this is worth it. But in God's providence, it seems that he's just kind of kept you a bit naive there. And, and as a result now, to see you come out the other end and see it kind of more uh, victorious, if you will, um, it's, it's just really nice to see. And, you, and your website is a testimony to that. And it gets a lot of traffic, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I'm one of those people who don't track any of that. Oh, I track all my stuff. <laughs> I am so sad. <laughs> you know, I do. I could not tell you how many downloads I get on iTunes or mm-hmm. on any of my podcasts. To me, if I have yeah. one listener that's not a family member, I'm happy. <laughs> right. There you go. That's victory enough for you. Yeah. So because I, I realized that I, I know me mm-hmm. and I would get 
an ungodly fixation on the numbers. Oh, so it's, I just, it's impossible for me to do that with this show. <laughs> but it's getting better. It's getting but better. you know, I'm already doing it with iTunes comments, but that's as far as I'll let myself go. I'm okay. like totally obsessed with iTunes comments. So and you're I realized, to- yeah. you totally did it for the right reasons, and that's really good to see. <laughs> yeah. So I really don't know how many hits my website gets. I, mm. I know the impact just from emails. Yeah. And, and things like that. And I will provide a link. Uh, on my website to your website, but uh, tell everybody again what it is. Sure, I, I have multiple sites that they mm. kind of like have a theme. Uh, the the first one and the one that's the repository of all kinds of information, not just from me, but from that I've collected. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to do the Google search on the internet. I've done mm-hmm. it for you mm-hmm. and, and collected everything that I could find, mm-hmm. and that's preteristsite.com. Yes. And that's my main site. I've since branched off with a couple other authors to preterisblog.com. That will have more current cutting edge what's going on today micro articles like like blogs should have. Right. Um, More more polemical, more – not polemical, just more like what's happening right now. Yeah, and more more one-on-one interactions with what, you know, Mr. Hyperpreterist said yesterday on such and such site. Right. Which – the other site really is more for more full-length things, things that are, you know, mm-hmm. not quite as transitory as just what, you know, right. somebody said the other day. Mm-hmm. And then also there's preteristpodcast.com, mm-hmm. which is my podcast. I haven't mm-hmm. updated it in a while because I'm going through a lot of personal trials and tribulations right now. I'm going through a divorce and I really appreciate everyone's prayers, not just for me, but but for my for my husband as well, that we, we both come out of it mm-hmm. better Christians. Mm-hmm. and. So I haven't updated that in a while, but what I'm doing on that podcast is going verse by verse through Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. I found for a lot of people, myself included, reading sometimes a long treatise, especially right. with a lot of Bible verses mm-hmm. that you don't want to go look up. I mean, I know this probably sounds, you know, doesn't sound too holy to say that, but I think everyone, you know, they're you're reading a commentary, you're like, oh, yeah. you know, so – I said, well, some people I have I wrote a commentary already. It's about 140 pages mm-hmm. called It's Not the End of the World, mm-hmm. dealing with the Olivet Discourse. But I said, you know, a lot of people I think would get benefit out of me going through it verbally. Mm-hmm. You know, because you have personality and you can joke and make it not quite so dry and mm-hmm. add a couple things, you know, and I think it's been pretty successful. I get more emails on the podcast than I do on the written commentary. So oh, I believe it. Yes. Um, audio. I mean, what we're doing here, I believe, is uh, the way forward. Um, so. So, yeah, um, that's good. Um, please go over to her website and read all her stuff. It's she gets the best and she throws out the bad stuff. You know, it's, so it's 100 percent. Orthodox. Um, I, I still remember when the first websites you had, you had that little logo up at the top. This is 100%. Oh, I still have heresy, that. Heresy free. Yes. Yeah. I've had, and I've had people actually take that like so seriously. I've had people get very angry at me and write me and ask me, who certified you? Really? Yes. Oh, um, get a life. <laughs> I, I had people. Okay. Christians are funny. Okay. You yeah. got to laugh at our Christians. I love them. But yeah. there's some odd Christians. My The website, I changed design over years like everyone does. At one point, it had a green and black theme, and I mm. got rebuked. I mean, thoroughly rebuked because only hacker sites are green and black. And I'm like, how do you know that? Because yeah. I didn't know no, that. No, you know? I didn't know that until you mentioned it. So Yeah, I've had some interesting – So you can't please everybody. Yes. But it seems that it, 9% are very pleased with uh, what you produce, yeah. there, if not more. Um, so 
If I can interrupt you just one yes, second. Yes, sure, go ahead. My, my, my partners in, in another ministry will just kick me if I don't mention this. I'm also very involved just in general apologetics and in dealing with um, more of the atheist next door type things. I, mm. I um, co-own a theology debate forum, theologyweb.com. Oh, yes, I've been on that. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's, I think it's fairly active. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm very proud of it, but it's not, you know, it's not like rapture ready. You know, it's not a Christian forum. It's a yeah. Christian owned forum, but we throw open our doors and are very welcoming to people That's of good. any point of view. So so that it's kind of like the Mars Hill thing where we just invite everybody to dialogue because I have no fear of dialoguing with people of other faiths or atheists about about Christianity. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the nature of truth, isn't it? Yes. Once, you know, you're in the truth, we don't have to set up these walls to protect ourselves because it's the truth and the truth will always be victorious. And as we discovered there, hyperpreterism, I believe, is going to be a dying, a dying breed. And um, the light of true biblical eschatology is going to shine brighter. Uh, so I think it's a bright future. I'm not post-millennial, but I think it's a bright future. Well, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I know. I heard you talking about your two kingdom the, thing there. Yeah, I'm going to go. We might need to go. You yeah, know, it might I know. Be go time. Go a few rounds, but yeah. uh, we're getting on so well here. So it might be, uh, it might be a shame to just at this point to yeah. <laughs> to break the good vibe. But um, but that that aside for one, for one moment or two. Um, uh, for those who are really wanting the uh, quick fix, like okay, you've told me about hyperpreterism. Why is it wrong? Why would you say, personally, you 100% reject hyperpreterism? One, you've got the physical resurrection of First Corinthians 15, the nature of the resurrection, our resurrection being physical. Yes. That has not happened yet. Um, is there anything else that you feel is just like a hammer blow? You know, the, the, to me, the overarching thing is the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just really, I mean, I have such a passion now mm-hmm. for the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yes, the second coming, the, the second bodily return of Christ is important, but it's important because he brings the resurrection. Right. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth, they're important, but that's because we're resurrected and it's consummated. It's the consummation of creation. See, without the resurrection, the you know, the... the Redemption is incomplete. Yeah, redemption is incomplete. Christ fails in a way. He hasn't fully redeemed us from the curse of Adam. Right. And that is why hyperpreterism is definitely... It's still an Adam. <laughs> That's yes. what it is. It's you still know, there. And it's funny because the hyperpreterists like to, to paint me as this, you know, nasty little heretic hunter. And the funny thing is I get... People who don't know me in the eschatological circles, I get criticized usually more for being too not condemning enough, you know, hyperpreterists don't want to hear that. But when I get, you know, a a burn or my saddle about something, then it's usually, I'm pretty convinced it's it's very important. And I am absolutely convinced that hyperpreterism is a different gospel Mm. and it totally guts the heart of the Christian faith. Yes. Yeah. And I agree. And uh, I believe a lot of them are going to come back. Um, In fact, me and Jean did an interview uh, about a year and a half ago of a guy who was one of the leading hyperpreterists and he recanted. Yes, he did. That's yes. Roderick Edwards. Yes. Yeah. And then didn't the guy from Preterist Archive? Yes. So this is, this is promising stuff. Or this is encouraging stuff at the very least that um, it seems that a lot of them are uh, wising up or readjusting their theology and I'm happy to see it uh, and we want to see it happen more. Um, the other thing I was going to mention as well is um, I did like Paul's transcendental argument against hyperpreterism when he said uh, they can't account for debate. Yes. Because in the new heavens, new earth, there's no lies, which uh, implies false doctrine. 
and our positions are so radically different uh, that one is either true and the other isn't, right? Right. Well, and the Bible says, you know, in the consummation, we won't be tossed to and fro with every wind, wind of, of doctrine. doctrine. Right. I mean, so to how me, can we be in the final state? The funny thing is that, that I always said to the hyper preterists, listen, guys, seriously, you do not want me to be a hyper preterist yeah. because I would take it to its absolute logic. I mean, I'd be worse than any hyper Calvinist there was out there because yeah. the logical conclusion of hyper preterism mm. is that they're the only people who are saved because if if you're not going to be tossed to and fro with every doctrine, anyone who is, you know, they're they're not they're right. not redeemed. Right. I mean, if you really, you know, take it utterly seriously and there there is a a hyper preterist that I do I, I respect very highly. His name's David Green. And the reason yeah, I respect him, yes, is because he's very honest. And he had a debate with Keith Matheson. Mm-hmm. And David Green came out and I like Keith as well. I met him one time. I, I love Keith. Yeah. yeah. Keith is very accessible. We we yeah. have email conversations and mm-hmm. I he's wonderful. But but David came out and forthrightly admitted. Now of course I don't want to misrepresent David. He wasn't conceding Keith's point, but what he mm-hmm. was saying is from Keith's point of view, mm-hmm. if you take what the Orthodox believe is true, then hyperpreterism is not possibly a damnable heresy. It's definitely a right. damnable heresy. Mm. And most hyperpreterists don't want to admit that. Right. But David Green, he has the backbone at least of his convictions now. Yeah. You know. But you, you, can, you can at least tip the hat to consistency. Well, I think because he's so honest like that, mm-hmm. that one day he'll be the next one. He, know, he knows I'm gunning for him. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah so, <laughs> sorry, guys. We're praying for you. Okay, what can we say? So, um, so that's great. Uh, the fact that you've been used so mightily by the Lord, as I, as I see it, as I perceive it, uh, to help so many people that way. Um, but getting back to now mainstream preterism, historic preterism. Yes. Talk a little bit, just briefly, if you could, of the history of preterism. I know we're not going to have enough time to go into all the details, but I seem to remember once finding out that it was the Jesuits right, who really kind of formulated it. It was there exegetically by many... They systematized it. Systematized it, it, yes. Yeah, that would be... um, Oh, Lord, I'm forgetting the name. You know, getting old just isn't any fun. (laughs) Alcazar, there you go. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. He's he's a a, a Jesuit priest that was the first formulator Mm -hmm. uh, uh, of systematic preterism, let's put it that way. Right, but exegetically it was there previously. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, you could go back... Really, to some of the earliest writings, like Eusebius, there, there's definite strong strands of, of preterism there. Right, I've read Eusebius. And for those who don't know who Eusebius was, he was a secular historian, right? Or was he a Christian historian? He was a Unitarian. Right. So he so claimed to be a Christian, but he was a heretic. Right, okay. I, d- I can't remember him that he was a Christian. That's, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. But he was Unitarian. I didn't know that. I yes. Know that. That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, and That's okay. Uh, yeah. That's okay if that's the case or not the case. But yeah. he is... Certainly recommended when it comes to uh, first century uh, history when it surrounds right. Palestine. And also Josephus. Did Josephus touch on uh, the events surrounding Jerusalem and its significance? Well, he did. Um, he did, but he obviously didn't um, correlate it with the Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you read it and, and you take it as typical of the way the first century mindset viewed things and how they described things and how they perceived their experiences, it's – you know, it's he does prove the, yeah. the, the Christian scriptures w- w- and certainly didn't intend intend to do that. Right, right. So we have basically uh, a cacophony of witnesses. You know, we have scripture itself. And uh, we'll look at a few more verses as well, as time permits here. 
and we have historical witness, and then we've got the church, even the Roman Catholic Church. Now, obviously, my position on Roman Catholicism is the system is apostate. It's lost the true gospel. However, uh, that didn't happen overnight. And I'd, I even believe to this day that there can be people within the Catholic Church served despite the system. That's that's my position. Right. I thought that might be in your position as well. Um, and it's not as if everything the Roman Catholic Church produces is automatically erroneous. Correct. I mean, Mitchell Pacquay, if you, if you see him defend the deity of Christ. Oh, there's some awesome Catholic scholars. Right. Yeah, and, he's, and how he defends it exegetically. And he, the guy knows 12 languages. I mean, he's talented. He's gifted. Uh, so it's not as if everything that comes out of Roman Catholicism has to be immediately discarded. Uh, and I think this is one example, amongst others, where uh, they have got it right. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how they systematized uh, their, their eschatology. And I know it was polemical as well because they were trying to refute the Protestants who were saying the Pope is the Antichrist. Yes. And that's something that me and Jean uh, disagreed with when it came to, not together, but yeah. when it came to the confession, we, we both said, we have a small disagreement with the London Baptist Confession when it identifies the Pope as the Antichrist in the past. But I digress a little bit. Um, but the reason we share this is to let you know whether you're new to this or old to this. This is a solid position. In fact, I think this is the most solid eschatological position I've ever come to. And that's why I'm sticking yeah. with it. I, um, my, my faith has increased and my mm -hmm. confidence has increased you know, thousands fold since really, you know, studying this issue and becoming very se secure in it. There's there's an awesome little book. It's available for free. It, it's on Preterist site. Um, I believe the author's last name is Brown, but the the title is The Destruction of Jerusalem, an Irrefutable Proof of the Divine Origin of Christianity. You know, back then they had these yeah. long titles to their books. Oh, yeah, like John Owen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's only like 80 pages, but it really, I mean... Mm -hmm. When you read it, like, you know, you get goosebumps on because it yeah. really does. I mean, that book right there, you, you read it and then you just. It's just it, solid. Right? It's just solid that how God works in history and how he totally vindicated the Christian church mm. and Christ in that event. And the modern church is impoverished for its lack of knowledge of the significance of 8070. Right. Because what was taking place then, I touched upon this a couple of weeks ago, is the passing away of the old covenant people and the establishment of the new uh, that's centered around uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and finally capstoning with his ascension and enthronement. That's what it's about. And that's the transition period that we read about in the book of Acts, the mm -hmm. passing away of the, the old and the establishment of the new. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation, as Martin Luther rightly pointed out, it's more preoccupied with Christ's ascension than it is his second coming. And it's primarily a book of worship than it is a book of eschatological events for us to get all giddy about. Right. You know, and that's the sad thing of these recent fads, which will continue to reproduce themselves, I think, in different forms and flavors. But this idea that we can have a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in another and write a 14-volume series and uh, make movies with it. Uh, that's not the direction I believe the Lord has for us. I think he wants us actually... Get this novel idea. Go back to Scripture. Go back to the Bible and say, what did Jesus truly say? So do you want to touch on those Scriptures again in the Olivet Discourse? Um, or where are you at there? Uh, whatever you want to talk about. Well, know. yeah, well, more to, to – sometimes 
Well, sometimes there is a specific verse that some people just go, well, you just got to you just got to answer this one. It's this one that that troubles me. But to more of a holistic approach and just Mm -hmm. a a philosophy of it is we tend to to come to the Bible in a very anachronistic way where, you know, we read it as if it was written yesterday Mm -hmm. and. It wasn't. You, you have to respect the, the, the time period and the genre in which it was written. You have to let the Bible teach you mm-hmm. how, how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. So when we read a lot of Jesus's words, unfortunately, too many Christians think the Bible, you know, begins with the New Testament. And they're not very familiar with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But Jesus's audience, that's all they had. They didn't have a New Testament. Mm-hmm. So so when he spoke and started making allusions mm-hmm. to the Old Testament prophets, Mm -hmm. they would immediately make mental associations that I think Mm -hmm. we don't do today. And and we need to get back, you know, in that mindset. And I like to Mm -hmm. give people the the example, like even today, you you can say the first line of some modern fad or, you know, something everyone knows, you know, and it brings to mind a whole story Mm -hmm. with it. And it was the same way Mm-hmm. You know, back then, it's like when when Jesus was on the cross, when he said, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you just take that in isolation, it mm-hmm. it doesn't sound pretty victorious at all. But yeah. just quoting that one line would bring to mind all of Psalm 22. Right. And the victory that eventually follows. Right. right. You can't. And, and so you got You have to read eschatology that that way as well. It's got to be holistic. Yes. You got to read the old with the new. You got to see how the old uses that language and again for those interested in that i touched on that on uh, show 15 a couple of weeks ago apocalyptic language is not to be taken literally it's a metaphor and it speaks mm-hmm. of uh either destruction of a nation uh, a dissolvement of an economy or in biblical eschatology normally as pertains to israel uh, a judgment upon the old covenant people and god uses this hyperbolic language, this apocalyptic language, to talk about the severity of their judgment. And the first generation crucified the Lord of glory. I know the Gentiles and Pontius Pilate conspired together, of course, but it was the Jews who said, let the blood of him be on our hands and our children. And we see from there that the covenant curses that were pronounced in Leviticus and Deuteronomy come upon apostate Israel. Not true Israel. Right. True Israel from all to new has always been of the faith of Abraham. You know, the natural implications, and I'm not, please, any dispensationalists, don't get all upset. If you take this generation and broaden it beyond the first century, you're making Jews of all times guilty for the crimes of the Jews of the first century. Right. And, and that is just... My, bo- my boss at work is not guilty yeah, <laughs> for that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's... And it really... it it. No wonder, you know, sometimes, you know, Jews will sense such hostility or, you know, they, they think, you know, the, the Christian religion is anti-Semitic. Mm. But really, it was a specific generation of people that were guilty, not Jews of all time. Right. Um, leading up, this is very important, I think. When I realized this mm-hmm. was inherent in dispensationalism, mm-hmm. I was really, you know, really shocked. When, at, at the end of um, Matthew 23, leading up into... 
uh, Matthew 24, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and teachers and he pronounces all those woes and, you know, and calls right. them all kinds of nasty names like, you know, brood of vipers and all that. You know, he wasn't very polite. No. Um, not postmodern at all, was he? Yeah, not, not at all. He wasn't, mm. you know, he wasn't Emergence. cute and cuddly with the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> so starting um, with, with Matthew um, chapter 23, verse 35, mm-hmm. he, he, he well, actually, let's go back to 34. He says to them, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, mm-hmm. whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Here's where it's important. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Right. The wording there is echoed in Matthew twenty four thirty four. It's bookends. Right. If the generation of Matthew twenty four is either this race, which is the worst of all possible interpretations, yeah. you are saying the whole race of Jews is guilty for all the blood ever shed on the earth. And that's just horrible. It's a horrible thing. So ironically, that which promotes itself is pro Jewish. It's not. It's not. And that's why the Amillennial or the certainly the preteristic interpretation basically did away with uh, all positions really you know it's it's not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile you all find your identity in Christ correct and that's what Ephesians 2 is about broken down that middle wall petition so to re-erect that wall it just boggles the mind why somebody would adopt uh, a paradigm or framework of understanding scripture that would lend itself to going back to types and shadows so just on that uh, grounds alone, it's enough to dismiss the position. Um, but well, there's even yeah, uh, and other people have. Gary Damar talked about how you know there's these ministries like on Wings of Eagles that um, will have you you send money and they pay to relocate Jews in Israel. Right. But dispensationalists believe that the biggest bloodbath of all is going to happen to the Jews in Israel. Well, two thirds of them would be killed. Why would you send them there? Like, Why aren't you saying run, yeah, go anywhere? You yeah. know. England, if you have to, you know, anywhere, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's this crazy. Yeah. Cognitive it's, dissonance. Yeah. With, with, and I believe, you know, when dispensationalists profess a love for the Jewish people that they do. Oh, they love them. Yeah. But they we don't should love them as well. see. Yeah. And also I think there's a failure to draw a distinction. I've said this several times before. There's no more old covenant Jew. There's people of Jewish descent. Correct. Who are Jewish, but there's no more old covenant Jew because the old covenant According to Hebrews and the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse was dissolved completely in AD 70 through the destruction of the epicenter of worship, which was the uh, the temple. So, yeah, I mean, this position just became increasingly more persuasive to me. And I saw the centrality of the cross in it as well. The centrality of uh, Christ's enthronement over his creation and his victory over the grave and how he presently rules from heaven. And just seeing all that, it was it was pretty quickly uh, an easy conclusion for me. Um, even though I had the premillennial theological dictionary, I had dispensationalism by Charles Ryrie, I was hardcore, man. But You want to laugh. When Pastor Corey Soraya, Soraya was... Um was mentoring me and we were on the phone. I was so upset. He's like, well, do you have a Bible handy? And I yeah. said, yeah, I have the Schofield reference <laughs> yeah, Bible. I, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm like almost embarrassed. Yeah. But there's an I, – I was on the Unbelievable Radio show like maybe three months ago mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't trying – I don't like – 
doing gotchas at people, but there was mm. an inadvertent gotcha with the dispensational pastor. And he, t- I could tell that, it, you know, mm. every once in a while somebody says something that just rocks. You yes. know, you're like, oh, okay, I didn't think about that. And I, I'd said to him, we were talking about Daniel chapter 9. He was mm. talking about the gap in Daniel chapter 9. So, so I asked him when he thought the 69th week ended, and he said at the triumphal entry with the with the 70th week to start sometime in the future. So I said to him, I'm like, Pastor, where does that put the cross? Yeah. And he stopped. Mm. And I was like, you, you realize that you're putting the cross in the invisible, unknown mystery gap? In the parentheses of yes. God's plan? And as as you overturn these stones, it's like it's just completely untenable. Uh, yeah. And uh, I felt the moral obligation <laughs> to uh, I don't want to get the word words as strong as renounce because it wasn't as if I'd made a previous public statement. I mean, I did teach it a little bit in my early early days uh, that is dispensationalism, but I just felt the moral obligation to to ditch it. Just this is just simply not biblical, and I'm. And I'm morally obligated to obey and to believe that which is biblical and biblically defensible. Um, so I think there's some others out there who have yet to come to that conclusion. But I'm hoping that this type of broadcast uh, can help just a little in getting people on that track. Um, do you have anything else you would like to uh, to share? Uh, well, it, I have a couple of things as well. But you oh, sure. Ahead. Well, yeah. as to you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, eschatology." You know, I'm pan millennial. However, it pans out, I'm fine. Yes. And I'm just like, what a like lackadaisical attitude to have to something that actually occupies a great deal of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Plus, even just dealing, because as I said, you know, I like dealing with with unbelievers, and you know, with theology web, I do a lot of that. Any atheist you talk to that's, you know, walking around with their big bad list of biblical contradictions, Matthew it, 24, 34 is on all of them. It it actually came up in the debate with uh, Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson. And Doug Wilson was immediately able to say, well, no, you're not understanding the passage. You're not understanding apocalyptic literature. You're not understanding uh, Old Testament language here and New Testament language. And he, in a matter of moments, just refuted the entire straw man argumentation. So yeah. it's useful apologetically. Yeah, and atheists, you know, who don't have this desire to preserve their faith or whatever, they see th- they see through the smokescreen when you try to explain that as something other. When than you go, ah, oh, it's it's this race or the generation that sees these things. Yeah. Like, they don't buy it. They don't buy it. And I don't expect them to, but I do expect them to buy what we're presenting, because what we're presenting is look at how this language is used. Look at the didactic passages that clearly speak of not only the destruction destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but also the final return of Christ that results in the final general resurrection of all people, which ushers in the consummated era, the consummated uh, glorified cosmos, according to Romans 8. And uh, let's just move on with our lives, you know, with that doctrine in place so we can focus on the right things, that we can focus on the Great Commission, that we can focus on the things that the Lord would have us busy with and not trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist and other pointless activities we can get encumbered with. Now, I do have... Yes, You're you're probably just going to have to tell me to shut up eventually (laughs) because, like, I can go go on and on, but I... And I think preterists do this too. I think there, there, there's a mistake that's made with eschatology Mm. that it's, like, it's cordoned off Mm-hmm. into like this little segment of time, whether you, you put it in partly in eighty seventy, and then another chunk's going to happen at the end of the time or mm-hmm. all of it's going to happen at the end of time. And I 
think it's that's a big mistake. Mm-hmm. I think the the present age is eschatological. Mm-hmm. And I think the key – well, there's two key passages for that. And people get very surprised when I tell them you cannot understand New Testament eschatology unless you understand Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? No, I, they, I am, I'm not like, what? But I'm, I mean, I'm curious. <laughs> yes, well so, – I know, I know what it means. Yeah. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. Is that the one? Yeah. The Lord yeah. said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make um, your, your enemies a footstool um, yeah. for your feet. And then later on he says, rule in the midst of your enemies, which is interesting mm-hmm. even for a, millen- for a millennial point of view when they're, mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, you know, this can't – because, you know – Obviously, I, 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 you and I agree, even though you're not post-millennial, the, mm-hmm. the millennial age is now. And, yes. and, and, but people say, but, you know, look at all these wars and enemies of Christ. I said, but Psalm 110 says when Jesus rules, he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. Mm-hmm. I mean, right there. And, you know. That's very good. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. There's so much just in Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. But Psalm 110, if you ask most Christians what, you know, say, what's the most quoted or alluded to Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Mm. It's Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. It is. And most people do not know that. And that's why it's so, it's so critical to understand first the Psalm in its context and then see how the mm-hmm. New Testament writers mm-hmm. apply it. And to me, then eschatology almost falls into place. And the New Testament verse that I think kind of you know, tie, ties it together and mm-hmm. like, I can't, it's in, it's in Matthew 26, trust me. And I think it's like If I remember the 63. verse, I'll, I'll throw it out. But, oh, it's right here. Mm-hmm. 64, as close. Very good. When Jesus is speaking to the high priest, he right. said, um, at, you know, at his trial, he said, I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes. There's an allusion to Psalm 110 right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I knew it was Daniel 7, but I didn't know that. Well, but also uh, that's what's – because he's talking about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Of course, yes. Okay. Now, really, when I sat and I looked at this, um, this this passage is so awesome, okay? (laughs) If you look at it, try to to interpret it as a futurist. Mm -hmm. Well, when when I say – as your typical dispensational Tim LaHaye left behind type thing. You you look at this passage and it says, at the same time – Jesus is seated seated at the right hand of power and also coming down to earth. Mm-hmm. How, how can you be sitting and coming at the same time? Right. You can't. And the re- what Jesus is doing here, like the Bible does a lot, it'll say one thought and then it restates it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Seated at the right hand of power means the exact same thing as coming on the clouds of heaven. Right. His sitting, his ruling is his coming. And yes. that's where I think Gary DeMar misses the boat and most, not to criticize him, I think most mm-hmm. um, Orthodox preterists miss the boat. When hmm. people say to me, oh, so when's Christ coming? And sometimes I say something just, you know, shock him a little bit to get him thinking. Yes, I believe, obviously, he, he came physically in the first century. Mm-hmm. I believe he's going to come again at, yes. at the end of at the end of time. But I also believe he's coming right now because his coming is his rule. And yes. once you understand that, all these coming passages in the New Testament, everyone wants to put it in one box or the other. Right. It's totally unnecessary. Revelation 1-7 where it says every eye will see him. Yes. And it's not talking about one specific event. It's talking about his reign. Right. And sometimes we try to pigeonhole or just so kind of box it. Yeah. It has to be this, it has to be that. And it's more synthetic than that. Yeah. And it's taken the layers, you know, of of his uh, his domain and his, his rulership that began in the first century that is... Continuing. Continuing and will be consummate. That's why I always like to refer 
to uh, eschatology as the study of the consummated things, not the study of the last things. Right. Because the final day will consummate redemption, and that will be the redemption of our bodies and the glorified cosmos, as Roman 8, uh, what, what it says. What else is packed in here, though? You're, you're, you got, is this what the um, NAS? Uh, this is my good friend Brian's. Yes. He's, okay. I thought it was. I thought yes. it was the NAS. Yes. Because it, it translates it. Well, I, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar, so here I am. I'm sounding a little bit pompous. I believe it translated correctly, yeah. and I have consulted with people who actually do know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, a lot of versions will say um, something like, "In the future, you will see," or mm-hmm. you know, it, it futurizes the passage. But this one says, "From now on." Mm-hmm. He's standing right there, but he's telling the high priest from this point forward, from now on, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the right, clouds Right, the present ahead. tense. He's present standing tense. there in a futurist point of view. How in the world does that make sense? Right. And we've got this wooden crass yeah. hermeneutic at times that demands that it all has to be literal in that kind of wooden sense. And it's just, it's just uh, an untenable position and cannot be defended uh, with verses such as that. And you mentioned Daniel 7. I yes. told you, you are going to have to shut me up at some point. <laughs> I tell, I take futurists to Daniel 7 all the time because they think that's a passage about Jesus coming back to rapture right. the saints. Or I go, look at this. I go, he's coming in the wrong direction. Yeah, he's going up. <laughs> he's going up. He's not coming down. Yes. You know, and... So you can't just grab your Strong's Concordance and say, okay, every time I say the word, I see the word parousia, or parousia, as it's pronounced, yeah. Uh, then it means this final event in the future. It doesn't always mean that. You, it the, you, we come sometimes at passages with our framework. Yes. And we don't even realize that we're not reading what it actually says. We're reading our framework into it. Right. Yeah, those presuppositions. Yes. And, and those presuppositions have to be uh, questioned. You know, what presuppositions are we using? And the right presupposition is the original intent of the author. And that's what biblical hermeneutics is all about. So the foundation of all this is hermeneutics and understanding Mm -hmm. what was the original intent of the author. Now, I think we could do a whole new new show because there's so much content. So I think I would like to have you back on again. Well, you know you don't have to ask me. Yeah, that's great. And we'd be more than happy to do that. (laughs) But I think just in conclusion here, I'm just going to kind of best systematize um, as I see it. And then I want you to basically... Talk about how you see it, and then I'll, I'll okay. definitely uh, uh, conclude for the evening. But um, my position is, if somebody wants to know, okay, Jonathan, what is your position on eschatology? This is the best way I can put it to you in the most abridged way. I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, marked the final dissolvement of the Old Covenant and the final ultimate establishment of the New Covenant. And... Christ will return one day, known as the day of Christ for the believer, known as the day of the Lord for the unbeliever, and consummate redemptive history. That's my position. I just wondered if you had... Yeah, I would, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So when you, when you read the Bible, I would say that's the best framework. But as we've argued, both in this show and the previous show, it's the most biblical, defensible position to hold to. And I've seen this in public debate. And... People say, well, it's, you're obviously going to agree with the partial preterists or the orthodox preterists. Oh, yeah, I always go, oh, yeah, I, I caught myself. <laughs> but with the orthodox preterist, but it is a landslide victory for for the likes of Demar, Gentry and others who get up and defend this position. So um, that's basically your position. That's my position. Um, we do reject hyper-preterism. We pray for those in 
that group, uh, which we would recognize as, as heretical. And um, we're just going to continue to honor God and honor his word. And if his word demands that we change certain presuppositions or certain conclusions that we had, then we do so. Well, and as I told you, shared before the show, mm-hmm. I just said, because I know some of your leader, re, uh, le- readers, mm-hmm. listeners will be going, yay. Yeah. I was telling you, I'm almost reformed, almost there. <laughs> you no. know, I might be giving up my Molinist heresy. <laughs> so. Well, not all my listeners are reformed. I've got a, a lot of Pentecostal friends. Oh, you know, well, then maybe, you know, they'll be doing the boo hiss. But, right, you can't yeah. run them all. Neither can I. <laughs> but I, I think I, I have a track record of being willing to change. Yes. Very cherished and long held. <laughs> Uh, traditions. Yeah, traditions. Yes, and uh, traditions are good as long as they don't get in the way of the Bible. Yeah, but I'm telling you, you know, one thing mm. I never thought I'd be is a Calvinist. Right, you know? so oh, guys, I'm getting excited. So oh, I'm getting excited. Yeah, perhaps we'll have you back on the show once you made that transition. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> okay, I think on that nice note, we'll uh, wrap things up. Thank you again, Dee for being on the show. It's been a delight, and I'm sure we'll have opportunity to do it again. I, you know... You know, you want to invite you say, hey, you want to come talk? Hey, you don't have to ask me twice. The only thing that makes it guaranteed is if there's food. Yeah, and the food was good. (laughs) So thanks to Brian there. So, yeah, we'll leave it like that. And uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, next week, I guess I'll talk about something completely different. Okay, God bless and bye for now.